Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing a migrant church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the migrant church continue to thrive? What should a migrant church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla y la Dra. Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we name, challenge, and discuss the realities of assimilation in our community. Too often, communities are treated as a monolith, ours especially, a single community with a single set of beliefs and practices. We know that's not true, but today we explore what our diversity really means for the Mestizo Church by telling part of our stories and looking at some of the numbers. So sientas en casa, make yourself at home, and let's get started. Elizabeth, we're back. It's been a whole year since I talked to you. No, eso no es verdad, but it's been a long time since we talked. How you been? Good, good. It's been, a, it's been quite a year, too. A lot has happened. It's been such a wild year, both personally uh, for us at World Outspoken, for the ministries we partner with, and for the world around us. So, you know, politics have been uh, a source of great drama in the, in the last few months, particularly here in the States, and even in, uh, in Nuestra Isla, in Puerto Rico. There have been quite a few things going on. Of course, we've got the pandemic that continues to rage. It has been a wild year. What, what are some of the highlights for you? Some things that have happened since the last time we've been on. I think that the racial pieces, <clears throat> the way they played out, and how um, Latino pastors, for the first time, began to uh, post on Facebook. This was not just, you know, like, talk to each other kind of stuff in, 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 in the boonies somewhere, right? But this was like going public. Yeah. They started to, they started to um, acknowledge uh, Black Lives Matter and to say why that was important. And we're talking about really conservative pastors. We're talking about bishops doing this kind of thing. And that was very significant. That uh, showed a great deal of awareness taking place in our community and new steps in the public witness of the Latino church at this time. Oh, yeah, that was that was a special a special thing for us to see. We've got some partners. Shout out to Mission Talk. I was thinking who's a good friend. Uh, mm -hmm. We have seen him lead the way, even in Florida, where uh, that's, we'll talk more about Florida in a bit here, but there has been quite a bit of conservatives, conservative kind of staunch commitment. And we have seen him um, help pastors to see that, that there are ways that they can be more integrated, that their values don't have to be so cookie cutter to one political party. And it's been amazing to see. That's a highlight for sure. Uh, I'm going to highlight as well some other things in addition to seeing some of our pastors really step up and enter the fray. You know, we at World Outspoken have seen immense community, a wonderful community grow around the topics that we've been discussing. Uh, we have had friends join us from all over the country in California, New York and places. And, and we want to highlight that. We want to thank the listeners who have joined us, who have partaken in the articles, who have sent us notes, who's who have decided to gather in small groups to talk about the things that we've raised. Shout out again to the Young Leaders group, who has been a faithful group listening to the show. I do want to say, though, Elizabeth, if, if I can speak candidly to the audience, somos Latinos, and you know how Latinos, we shoot straight. Tenemos un poco de un problema con, con nuestra gente. Because here's the thing. 
we know we've got a lot of lit- listeners. We know we do. And we know that uh, that they've been faithful. They've been writing notes. They've been sending us things on social media. That's awesome. But last I checked, unless I'm wrong, last I checked, we have about 30 reviews on Apple Podcasts. And y'all, I know y'all know, because y'all listen to other podcasts besides this one, that the best way to support a podcast's promotion so that others can find and see it is to leave a review. And so I know not all of you listen with Apple Podcasts. I know some of you are using Spotify or some of these other things, even our website to listen to the show. But if you got an iPhone, no el favor and leave us a review. Again, this helps us in a number of ways. This helps us to promote the show. It helps us show that our communities roll deep, right? When, when other ministries are looking at World Outspoken and considering partnering, it helps us to show, hey, no, nuestra gente are here. They're, they're, they're talking, they're listening. So, so help us out. And, and I say that because I want to see, and Elizabeth, I think you can agree with me that, with this. I see no reason why we can't have at least 50 reviews by the next time we have another episode. What do you think about that? That's a total possibility. <clears throat> I think it just means taking a little bit of time and um, writing a few words, uh, write them in Spanglish, write them in Spanish and English, write them in whatever, but, you know, uh, put emojis in it. I think that'll be a good thing. I think we can all do that. Yeah. Así que gente, 50 reviews by the next time we have an episode. Let's, let's make that happen. Hey, for you new listeners, those of you that are just now joining this space, we want to welcome you. This is a mixed space. This isn't uh, Latino only. It certainly hasn't ever been that way. We've got listeners that are listening from Romanian church backgrounds, Korean church backgrounds. We've got people from all over the world joining us. And so, sientas en casa, as we say in the intro, make yourself at home in a hyphenated community, a place que no somos ni de aquí ni de allá. We're from all over the world in that sense, and we're, we're on the margins with you. Okay, so last season we released our episodes once a week. We released it every Wednesday, and that was a good rhythm until llegó esto de la pandemia y nos atrasamos un poco. And then, of course, there were some of those racial things that happened, the death of Ahmaud Arbery that we still remember. Uh, those things slowed us down a bit toward the ends of the season. Uh, as we were looking at some of the stuff that we were up to this season, it felt best to, to for consistency's sake, and so we can do some cool things in between, we decided that the best rhythm for the show is to release an episode every two weeks. So that means the next episode of the podcast will release on March 17th, Marzo 17. And then, of course, two weeks after that, the next one, and two weeks after that, the next one. So... All right. Those are all my announcements, but I do want to tell you, stick around to the end of the show because I do have a surprise for you at the end of the show. If you stick around, there's another opportunity for our listeners to engage, and I don't want you to miss that. So did I miss anything, Elizabeth? No, I don't want to miss a surprise either. There's going to be a surprise for me as well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a good one. I, 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 want to, I want to highlight it for everyone. Elizabeth hasn't heard either. Okay, so let's talk about this. In season one, we dealt with intergenerational conflicts affecting the migrant church. We looked at uh, the truth of the matter is that our churches, most of them have started by migrants who came from their home countries, Puerto Rico, uh, in this case, not exactly a country, but Puerto Rico, Mexico, Costa Rica, uh, Peru, Guatemala, they came and they started their churches. And we know that the diasporic children, the second and third generation, started stepping into leadership, and that was causing some intergenerational conflicts. And so we were looking at some of those conflicts in that first season. In season two, se complica la cosa. 
We know we're not a monolith. That is news to many, but it's not news to us. Despite what the census might suggest, we'll be discussing the uniqueness of our Latinidad, including Afro-Latinos, including los, uh, the indigenous who are still among us that have not been erased and are with us. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of the complicated realities of the multiracial reality of Latinos internally, and then the multiracial reality of those that surround us. Uh, Elizabeth, if I can say, is married to a black man who also has uh, native blood running through him. I am engaged to marry a white woman. And so uh, the truth of the matter is that we're not just multiracial internally, but then many of us have uh, married interracially as well. And Elizabeth, that reality has been on the news, right? Ever since November, it's been a point of discussion that we're not a monolith. Uh, what have you seen? I think that people are beginning to even ask themselves that question. And that's an important piece. Um, before people were sort of keeping to themselves, being more quiet about it, it was their own thing. But um, at this time, we have to step forward and reflect on it and see you know, what this really means for us. And people are beginning to redefine uh, how they've seen themselves. People are beginning to try to define new spaces, um, things that haven't been defined as yet uh, to understand what is our mix, right? Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a good thing because I think that one of the things that has happened is that we've always had to uh, choose to define ourselves from the terms that others had put out for us. That'll preach either uh, the political system put out those terms, you know, the census and so forth, or even our friends, right? Well, are you black or are you white? Well, are you this or are you that? You know, even our friends put out particular terms and definitions for us to have to choose from. And that doesn't work. Yeah. We have to, we have to do our own reflection and there might be uh, some new spaces that we want to define for ourselves. Agreed. It was really interesting to me. Uh, you know, I've been watching the news since November and it's been a point of discussion, especially, you know, I'm from Florida. I spent 10 years of my life in Florida and Florida has been on the news a great deal entre los Latinos because, you know, there, there was the big push, the big discussion of, oh my gosh, look at how many, how many Latinos voted for Trump. That was a, all of a sudden a, a point of surprise. And I had friends who were from Florida who were quick to distance themselves from that, right? To say, no, 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 no fui yo, don't count me in that, right? Um, but, but it's been a point of discussion to say, you know, there, there's some diversity here. Wait a minute, what's going on? They don't vote the way that we thought this voter block votes. We, we thought they would vote this way or that way. Um, and we have... Latinos in California voting one way, Latinos in, in Florida voting another. And even that's not a simple story. If you Latinos in the same family voting a whole lot of different exactly, ways. Exactly. Right. So what you have is sort of the breaking of this monolithic perception of Hispanics in America. It's falling apart. And that's a good thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that people don't assume that I eat tacos all the time. <laughs> yeah. Or that you like hot food, right? Yeah. You like hot food or spicy food. Yeah. I say that tongue in cheek, but the truth of the matter is it, it's a blessing and a gift that we, we have a future to look ahead to where Hispanics are no longer monolithic. And there isn't the erasure of some aspects of Latinidad, some people in, La, in the Latino community. Hey, I wanted to talk about that. 
a little bit, Elizabeth, and and maybe broaden the scope of how we even got to the idea that Hispanics somos todo uno, right? We're one group. I want to talk a little bit about how we got there. So I thought we would go through the history a little bit. How does that sound? That's a good idea because we really do need to know what are the roots of all of this if we're going to uh, have a serious reflection on it. Yes. So there are a few places that we need to go, places we need to visit in the States and times that we need to set up. And Elizabeth is going to help us uh, kind of interpret or understand the facts. I'll give you some of the facts. Elizabeth will help us understand some of what that means, especially as as it relates to some of the authorities who promoted some of these things. I was watching, Elizabeth, uh, some, some commercials from the 1970s and 80s that the Census Bureau, they paid really prominent Latinos to go on Univision and say, hey, you need to fill out the census. It was some scary stuff, some some straight up propaganda type stuff where they paid, clearly paid buku dollars to have, you know, big names in the Hispanic community go on Univision and, and advocate for certain things. So 1849 is the first date we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1849, the citizenship rights of former Mexicans, remember this is right after the Treaty de Guadalupe. This is when May- oh, in California, Texas, and a few other states, the border passed over them and they went from being Mexican land to being uh, land owned by the U.S. Owned is the this right. This is the charter community. This is the, yes, that's right. What, what eventually would lead to the, the development of Chicanos, right? Uh, well, the rights of former Mexicans, now U.S. citizens, were, became a major political issue in California. Uh, there were delegates to the California State Constitutional Convention, which wrestled with the question of which Mexicans, notice what I said, which Mexicans should be granted the full right of citizenship. Six of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention were Californians uh, or former upper-class Mexican citizens of land-holding class. They were wealthy. They had a big decision to make. And our friend uh, Robert Charromero, he does a good job of articulating this in his book, Brown Church. He asks it this way. He says, would they look after their own privileged interests and seek state citizenship only for themselves and those of their own, entre comillas, Spanish social class, Or would they seek to advocate for the broader interest of all former Mexicans, regardless of racial and socioeconomic status? Put differently, would they side with the new empire or would they look after the interest of the poor and the marginalized as well? What do you think they did, Elizabeth? You had to take a guess. Unfortunately, it's uh, not a difficult guess to take. It's not. Because privilege usually stays with privilege. Yeah. Privilege stays with privilege. That's a great line. Yeah, you're right. In the end, they decided to protect their own interests and to protect their privileged status. And according to the California State Constitution of 1849, that constitution granted the right to vote only to, quote, every white male citizen of Mexico who now has U.S. citizenship. Did you catch that? Every white Californio, right? Every white Mexican. The rest of the Mexicanos who were there, the rest, the mestizos, the mulatos, the indigenous, the straight up black, they were pushed aside. And this is the start of this assimilating engine in the U.S. It's one of the starts, one of the origins. This is also the reason why when the gold rush hits, you continue to oppress 
Mexicans. Mexicans continue to oppress other Mexicans who did not have privilege, right? Mm-hmm. There's a perpe- uh, yeah, there's a perpetrating of this, a continuation of it. It creates an interesting predicament for Latinos in the U.S. that has continued ever since. Latinos are always somewhere between brown and black, in some cases all the way up at white, or, or sorry, they're between white and black, was what I meant to say. They're, they're brown, right? There's a select minority of us who actually manage to slip into whiteness and then forget about the rest of us. We'll talk about that select uh, minority later on in a future episode. But the vast majority of us have never had that option because either the color of our skin because of our economic status, because of our linguistic abilities, being able to speak English. Uh, A grand majority of us, Hispanics, Latinos, whatever you want to call that group, have not been able to slip into whiteness the way that some of our others have, have been doing. And I think that is what we saw, at least debated, in the recent election. But there were also other things on display, and that is the, the real roots of who we are, the histories of what people have been through in their own countries. Even when they're second and third generation, there are particular prejudices that have been passed on. So you will have um, Cubans who went through the first exiling community that came in and their children being taught by their parents that if anything is moving toward the area of of, uh, socialism, it means communism is about to come. That's right. Right? And the fear of that, because that was, in a sense, a community that suffered through the PTSD of that era. And they continue to move that to the next generations. And that was something that played uh, in people's decisions, not only with the political piece, but if you if you have communism, then that means that you can't have church. Yeah. So there, there's these there's the the legal mechanisms, the political mechanisms, and then there are these narrative mechanisms. Is what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. These narratives that played out in the culture and shaped some of the fears and some of the ways that uh, that we assimilated into the U.S. There's one other detail that I wanted to bring up before we take a quick break. Uh, there was a one-time inclusion of the term Mexican as a race category in the 1930 census, which was filled out by census takers who went door to door. So that means that everyone who was Latino in the 1930s during the census would have been subsumed into the category Mexican, at least for that one-time census. And so we see that from 18, what did I say earlier? 1849. Uh, 1849, all the way to 1930, there was there was really no sense for it. And then in 1930, instead of creating a more diverse, complicated story, everything was summarized under the category Mexican. But let's keep in mind something. For those who thought that they had privilege, there was a history of violence against Latinos in the frontier. In la frontera. In that borderland, right? There was a history of violence that uh, developed. And so it was so violent that at one point, the Mexican government wrote to the president of the United States asking for a change in what was taking place. And because the United States was trying to look friendly to other European countries, Uh they then, they, hello, they then, paid indemnification 
for the lives that have been lost to the Mexican government who then distributed to families and really how do you indemnify a life hello and then they began to change some of their policies but it wasn't because they said oh gosh you know yeah we did a bad thing here it's, it's because they had another interest on the table and during that time and even after during the Jim Crow times you had more Mexicans being lynched in the southwestern states than some African-Americans in the deep south. But that history hasn't come out totally yet. No, it hasn't. Speaking of erasure, right? Mexican lynchings haven't been talked about almost at all. Or the indigenous for that matter. There's a good deal of missing history. Or the ranger killings that took place, right? The Matanzas, which when you had this uh, person who did the killing in El Paso, the people who experienced Las Matanzas in El Paso said, oh, yeah, this is what happened to my grandfather. That's deep. Yeah. In other words, we're going back to that. And people have not really forgotten. It's just that those histories haven't been put out there. Yes. But for somebody to say, I remember when my grandfather died this way because of the Matanzas that happened in the early 1900s. And here we are in the next century, and we're seeing this happen all over again? It proves that there are all sorts of mechanisms moving us toward, pressuring us toward assimilation. We've got political mechanisms, we've got violence, we've got narratives that inform all of the ways in which we have been pressured to assimilate. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, more modern history, and we'll tell you our own personal stories of how assimilation has played a role in our lives. We're back. Mixtake season two, a world outspoken podcast is coming this fall, 2021. Season one, we focused on how the mixing of cultures in our country impacts the movies that we know and love. We checked out the works of talented film directors that created movies like Creed, Selma, The Revenant, and Pan's Labyrinth. In season two, we'll continue this journey as we delve into the music industry. So we understand the impact that music can have on our minds, but do we know how it impacts our living or how our living impacts our music? Tune in to Mixtake Season 2, premiering this fall on a podcast channel near you. All right, so we're talking about some of the histories of assimilation. We've talked about some of the pressures, the mechanisms that have been used to try to make the Hispanic community uh, a simplified, monolithic group. These are mechanisms that have uh, pressured us into some forms of erasure via violence, uh, some forms of erasure via political assimilation, right? Registering everyone in the 1930s as Mexican, right? Uh, there's been politics, there's been narratives, there's been violence that has led us to this. And now in the 1960s, things get interesting. In the 1960s, our brothers in Texas, uh, brothers and sisters in Texas, California and other states started to develop the Chicano movement. Uh, the Chicano movement is interesting. I'm no expert on it. Uh, Robert Charromero is, is your guy. You should talk to him about it. But there are some interesting things that are worth noting theologically what happens there, as well as uh, political advocacy. I'll, I'll mention the advocacy and then I'll let Elizabeth talk us through some of the theological importance there. 
But the Chicanos, these are these are um, people of Mexican descent who said we have been in this land since before it was even U.S. land, right? We've been in this territory, Texas, California. That's that's who we're talking about when we mention Chicanos. Uh, they were noticing how Latinos were being segregated against in housing, education, and public spheres uh, during the era of Jim Crow. They were noticing how families were, families were experiencing great injustice in the courts. And Chicanos were also familiar with the so-called Americanization programs. This is that assimilation we've been talking about. Chicanos were very much aware of, of these Americanization programs seeking to erase Latino culture and force assimilation. I'm getting this from a sociology text here. More than that, they were aware of the socioeconomic burdens, and so they started political advocacy movements to highlight the needs of the Hispanic community. So what's interesting here is there's a kind of gathering together that the Chicano movement does against the gathering together forces that the U.S. had. And there's a theology that gets embedded in there. Elizabeth, can you help us understand what is sort of the theology undergirding some of this Chicano advocacy? Well, first of all, understand that religion has been used in the conquistas to change people's understanding of who they are. Virgil Elizondo used to say that beyond the divine, there is no more transcendent way to have an understanding of who you really are. And that religion is the thing that unites a people, defines a people, defines their, uh, their cosmovision, their worldview. And if you want to destroy a people, you have to be able to destroy, to undermine their religious understandings. And that says a whole lot there, right? And <clears throat> when our people are having a moment of awareness and awakening to who they are, right? It makes sense that theology would follow. And a Chicano theology uh, takes place during this time as well. And so you have an author, I'm an old lady here, so I'm going to try to remember the name of this author, Andres Guerrero, who writes on a, a, a Chicano theology, and his approach is not systematic theology, right? According to the calculation of the matriculation somewhere in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what he writes about. He writes about different themes that have to do with the liberation of the people. So in a sense, there's the reinforcement of what's taking place in the movement through this religious understanding as well. And he's decolonizing, right? He's decolonizing how Christianity has defined the people, told the people what is important, um, what is sacred, what isn't sacred. He's redefining this and he's bringing up issues that are important for the people to take a hold of and to think of in relationship to their liberation. That's super interesting because what it means is that there are these two tracks. Maybe it's not as simple as two tracks, but at the very least, there are two tracks. There's an assimilationist track that is pushing to homogenize 
to make the same of and to adopt the kind of empire theology that is a part of the U.S., right? You got that track and you've got Latinos either by pressure or uh, desire to obtain power, right? The Mexicans who voted to keep their privilege as white male Mexicans, right? So either out of a desire to keep power or from pressure of violence, you've got some Latinos, some Hispanics uh, from different nationalities uh, moving toward the assimilationist track. On the other hand, another track you have, just as you mentioned, uh, Andres Guerrero and others are are advocating, saying, no, the spirit liberates and we can fight against this assimilationist empire. We don't have to homogenize. We don't have to adopt the theologies that are being forced on us. So you have these two tracks. There's probably other possibilities. This is not as simple as a, a, a two, you know, it's a, it's not a, a two-pole conversation, but there are at least these two tracks of um, development and tension. And what's interesting is as one pushes, the other pulls, right? There's, there's a back and forth that, that goes between these two because as the Chicano movement grew in the 1960s, it developed into a new uh, important detail in the U.S. census. I told you that in the 1930s, the U.S. census included the term Mexican as a racial category. The year 1970, 1970 census was the first time that we ever get the word Hispanic used in the U.S. census. And what's interesting, I'm going to read you a quote here that's really important. It says that Hispanic was first used and defined by the U.S., and it was used uh, to define a person of Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Central or South America, or other Spanish culture or origin, regardless of race. So you have some erasure happening there. You have some some gathering together under one bucket. I'm going to read further. The term was formed out of a collaboration with Mexican-American political elites. Here they are again, the same political elites as before. Political elites to encourage cultural assimilation into American society among all Hispanic and Latino peoples. And to move away from anti-assimilationist political movements like the Chicano identity and the Chicano movement. So as the Chicanos advocated and pushed... On the other end, the empire said no more and pushed in their own ways. What do you think about these two tracks, Elizabeth? Am I painting a, a solid picture here? There's always a back and forth, right? There's always a back and forth. And so anything that the government feels that it cannot control, it has to counteract. So there's the people being liberated and the, the government counteracting. And because the naming of a people is so important and the government contracts with this. Of course, the government says, you know, we can't, this is, this is a, a violent movement, just like they tried to name other movements from people of color in the 1960s. Uh, they tried to portray them as, you know, violent pieces and so on and so forth, something that people should fear. So the narrative of fear comes back again, something that we, have recently seen once more. Anytime you see a, a narrative of fear, big red flags should come up all over the place for us and say, ding, 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 what's happening here, right? What's being hidden? Yeah. What is it that people don't want us to see? It's whistleblowing. So the counteracting, and it's about control. So Hispanic, once again, is a way of trying to make us all fit one. 
one size fits all is what it's been about for them. They're not interested in the nuances and so on and so forth of who we are, uh, of our journeys. They're not interested in any of that. They just want a utilitarian way of defining us for their purposes. It's interesting, forgive me uh, as a professor of theology for getting theological, but it's interesting that the battle is the battle of naming, right? That the power that's being exercised is the power to name, to categorize, to identify, right? We know that in scripture, the ability to name is in some ways the ability to own, right? To say, this is mine in some ways, in some respects, right? We know that in the Tower of Babel, the, the human community there was trying to make a name for themselves, right? And we know that the Lord does the alternate when he gives a name to Abram. He gives him the name Abraham, right? And so naming is a display of power. And we have in this 1970 census an attempt to own via naming, by naming people as Hispanic. And to get a little bit more theological, you have God identifying God's self to Moses as I am. I think that's the ultimate of a people's journey. I am. I point out to the students all the time in my classes recently, I, I haven't thought of this until recently, but it stands out to me that the Lord reveals his name in the context of his people enslaved and crying out for help. It's to an enslaved people that he sends a deliverer, having given the deliverer, by the way, tell them that I am sent you, right? It's interesting to me that the context is the Lord is liberator as the one who's coming to set people free and sending a deliverer. That's when he gives his name. We're, we're getting off track here. We're getting off track. But it's important to note that there is theology in all of this, even in some of the political exchanges. You know, the sad And truth- by the way, oh, go ahead. Um, Andres Guerrero, uh, his book comes out in 1987, which is not, you know, out of the 60s, but it's what we see in that is that there is a way of gathering those pieces. And Chicano uh, didn't just disappear. It is still with us. And it's very important. That's really good. You know, this assimilation engine is not just a political mechanism for large swaths of community. Elizabeth and I no doubt have experienced it. We've seen how it's been perpetrated, how it's been continued. The legacy of it is extended by our very own, nuestra gente. Uh, in some ways, uh, look, I'll speak candidly, in some ways I think even I have perpetrated and extended the legacy of assimilation. Uh, I was just sharing the other day on Elizabeth, and I shared this, some of you saw this on social media as well, but I had a student recently ask me why I chose to be a professor of theology. And I, I had a kind of cookie cutter response to that previously that I would always share. And I used to say that I came to get trained and become a a scholar in theology so that I could offer the biblical education, the theological education for my communities because there wasn't any when I was in the churches that I was a part of. In other words, I was going to get training so that I could give training because it was missing. And I was wrong. I was wrong. Now that I've got some time to look back on my own community where I'm from, both in Florida and in Detroit, there was theological education. Now, we can debate about seminary level or Bible college. or that. We can debate that later. The point is there were rich wells of theological education that weren't being recognized because I didn't have the eyes to see. I was looking at things from an assimilationist perspective. No, you have to go through these channels. 
to get the kind of theological, to get anything that can count as theological education. Husto says something recently in an article when he talked about how he wants to get rid of his pipeline metaphor, that it has to go through these channels for you to get theological education. It's not true. And so I thought we'd spend some time thinking, Elizabeth, about our own personal stories of how assimilation might have affected our own lives and ministries and, and our experiences in our community. Uh, can you think back on an experience, Elizabeth, that, that highlights, as I mentioned here, this experience of me kind of pursuing education, highlights some of the ways that the assimilationist engine pushed you towards certain things? Well, I come from an American Baptist church. That's a, main, that's a mainline church. And mainline churches were assimilationist. They were assimilationists because people had come with a dream. And part of the preaching and the teaching was that if you want to make that dream happen, you need to be educated and you need to begin to fit into this society. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things about fitting into the society that are about survival, right? Our pastor was very assimilationist. Um, he was about you know, becoming Americano. You're here now, and this is what you need to do. And there's something that's important for a first generation that you can't really start living your life here if you don't start creating goals for being here and not always thinking about going back. And that's difficult because you have to get over the trauma of having to immigrate, especially if you're here unwillingly. So this is not black and white, okay? So our pastor taught um, my parents, all the parents, how to go to PTA meetings, for example, and how to dress for um, a parent-teacher day. You, you know, since they thought that we were all uh, factory workers and that we were, you know, messed up people and so forth, you got dressed up in your Sunday clothes so that you would look professional. We looked more professional than some of the professionals, right? But they taught us <clears throat> that this is what our parents had to do. And our parents would dress up and, you know, they would say, these are the kinds of questions that you have to ask so that you seem involved in the education of your child. And then they'll pay attention to your child at that school. That was important. That was about survival. Another important thing was in New York City, you had three different uh, diplomas for high school. You had a general diploma, a vocational, and an academic. And he would say, they're always going to try to put our kids in the general and vocational. You must advocate for your child to be in the academic diploma. That was really important. That was really survival, okay? Because they were always trying to put us into the lower classes, into the lower diplomas. Oh, wow, why are you doing this? You know, your people really don't uh, need this, etc. And our parents would advocate no, and our parents taught us to uh, move on for the academic pieces. That was part of being assimilationist. That was a, a particular agenda, but it was also survival, right? It was about economic survival. That's so important. The public school system <laughs> plays a big role in this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how that we have time to open that can of worms, but I know what you mean in terms of pastors and friends coaching parents and families on how to do this. My mom, I've I've seen my mom uh, really go off on someone only a handful of times, 
And one of the times that I saw her do that was when she discovered that I was put in an English, uh, an ESL class early in my time. Uh, it happened both in Detroit and when I moved to Florida. And she thought, what is happening here? This brother was born here. English is his first language. Test him on any of the English aspects. And she, she, she really, um, you know, she, she really rightfully put her foot down and I'm grateful that she did, but there is a kind of assumed project agenda here. You know, when we talk about assimilationists, what we're talking about is the, the, the pipeline to use that metaphor from, from Justo that drives Hispanics from the culture, the language, the identity that they bring with them and their families when they migrate here to an Americanized, um, can I say white? Is it fair to say white, Elizabeth? Americanized, white, um, white ideal that is being uh, developed and fostered, sustained here in the U.S. Um, I, I think that this happens via education and it happens via a number of mechanisms, but education certainly plays a role. It's a huge role. <clears throat> also, where you lived at the time. Um, so our pastor uh, didn't live with all, where all of us lived. Uh, he was a man with a PhD, and he did teach at a at a college. <clears throat> he was bivocational, and he he was able to teach as an adjunct at a college. And in that time, that was huge. But he didn't live where we lived uh, because he wanted to be an example of the fact that when you move up <clears throat> economically, then you go and you live where white people live, right? So he lived, you know, he lived in Queens at that time. Uh, in New York, that was huge. You lived in Queens. Oh my God. Tu sabe. Wow. Tu sabe. I guess I You know, and people would show off and say, Pastor de nosotros vive in Queens, nena. Wow. Right? <clears throat> yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, wow. Your pastor lives in Queens. I remember that. I remember one time a church that I was a part of, they raised a bunch of money and bought the pastor a super nice car. And the, the explanation was it's important for everyone to see. That we can that we can move up. It was crazy to me. I remember fi feeling really dissonant about that. But it, that that you just brought that memory to mind when you talked about oh this pastor leaves. The pastor represents, right? The pastor represents, and so that those those status symbols are important. But what the mainline church did also is that how we learned to be church and the standards to which we were held in terms of how we grew as a church, how our budget was put together. Um, we had to use Robert's rules of order when we had um, our meetings um, to be able to participate in anything denominational. You had to know this, this was entering a whole different world, right? And so this was, the American world. Yeah? I'll put that in quotes. This was the American world. This was, you know, how life took place and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and part of what went with that was, I remember one time we were living in Puerto Rico and someone who my mother had worked with in the denomination, my mother worked with the, with the denomination. She was, you know, she was a secretary, came to visit and she came to visit us. In, uh, he came to visit us in Puerto Rico and my mother, Said, oh my God, we have to clean this house. Que viene, viene fulano de tal, you know, I don't want to name names here. Viene fulano de tal, you know, and, and so we have to clean that house. Y hay que poner la casa como culito de angelito, you know, and all of that. Culito because he was coming. <laughs> and 
I, I, I remember as a kid, I was like 12, 13 years old. We had to dress up. He was taking us out to eat. Oh my God. Right. He, and you know, my family, we didn't go out to eat a whole lot. So this was like huge. He's taking us out to eat. And so I remember, you know, I had to dress in my Sunday best and the whole thing. And at that time, that meant that you had to have, you know, a little pocketbook kind of a thing and all of that. But I think back on that and it's like, my mother never did that. When someone who had a position who was Latino came to visit. Fascinating. She only did that for someone who was white coming to visit. So you see the, 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 not the, the, the implication of that. Yeah, the white especially idea. If, yeah, especially if, if you're growing up. So, so what did that do? So then in me, there's a sense of white people are better. Yeah. Yep. And I remember the very first time that Orlando Costas asked me to do a workshop at Andover Newton, where he was dean. They were having a conference and I was a pastor in Connecticut. Mind you, I'm a pastor. I have an MDiv, right? And he asked me to do a workshop. And I, I, I thought to myself, I can't do this. I can't do this because I have to stand in front of white people and teach them. And I, I, I obviously don't have the knowledge to do this, so I can't do this. So I called up Orlando and I said to him, listen, I can't do this, Orlando. And, and he didn't pay any attention to me. He goes, oh, because you know how I find out I had to do it? He sent me the brochure where he had already put my picture in, and, and my name <laughs> saying that I was doing it. So that's where you got that from, huh? <laughs> I was wondering why you'd be doing that to me. That's where you got that idea. And he says this to me. So I call him up. I said, Orlando, yo no puedo. And Orlando pays no attention to me. He goes, oh, you got the information. He says, so I'll see you then. And he hangs up the phone on me. And I said to my husband, oh, my God, I have to do this. And my husband goes, so what's the problem? You're an intelligent woman. You could do this. He said, you could, you could teach these people 100 times. And I said, no, Ira, you don't understand. You don't understand. He goes, why? Because they're white. You know, he names it, right? And I go, no, no, no. They just, you know, like educated people. He goes, oh, you have a master's. You're not educated. And and I couldn't put, I, I couldn't put my finger on, you know, what it was. It was just something deep inside of me. On the way there, if you want to laugh, I kept this, I can't, I can't narrative going. And my husband's praying over me. You know, he's driving. He's being very patient. He's saying, God, please be with my woman, Jesus. And, you know, help her understand that she could do this. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore. It's, it's two hours from Connecticut to Boston. He couldn't take it anymore. He gets out of the car. He parks on the lane outside. And he goes, woman, get out of the car. And I thought, oh my God, he's leaving me right here in the highway. And he comes out. He places his hand over me and he goes, Jesus. And he, he, he prays this, you know, prayer about my anointing. And he goes, amen. And he goes, okay, that's all I got. Get in the car. <laughs> I got in the car. I didn't dare say another word. But Emmanuel, there was a breakthrough that day. I asked the first question. You know how you ask a question to get people like interested in the topic? And no one had an answer. I asked the question several ways and these people were lost. And I then began to teach. I was like, oh my God, right? I didn't want them to look bad. So I began to teach and to you know, show some things. 
And everybody raved about it, said they'd never heard these things. And my husband was just sitting in the back, smiling, this Cheshire cat smile, you know, like, hey, I told you. Yeah. And that broke that myth for me that white people were better than me. Mm -hmm. So the assimilationist piece teaches you to become somebody you're not, but also tells you, but you'll never be that good either. Bingo. Yep. Bingo. You're always chasing in the assimilationist uh, way of pursuing identity and, and pursuing a life. You're always chasing the white ideals always out in front of you. And there's always the imposter syndrome. Yep. I don't really belong here. Let me do what I can to, to try to pass. The trying to pass piece is not only a color piece, right? It's a, it's a, a competence piece as well. Yeah. Yep. It's interesting for me. It's worked. Uh, it's worked in a variety of ways. So y'all know, if you've listened to the first season, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. That's where I was born. I was born in a community that was mostly uh, Bangladeshi folks, Polish folks, black folks. I didn't know other Latinos for a long time early in my early in my life, except for Mexicans on the southwest side of Detroit, where we would drive to at least have some experiences in Latino communities. That's where my church was. But what was interesting was, in the eyes of most people who saw me, I was black or I was Bangladeshi. But if a black person saw me. No, you can't be black. You're not one of us. Not that I was claiming it anyways, but it was really interesting to say, no, you ain't one of us. Right? I remember being ridiculed by, by a, a group of kids when I was a kid uh, because they were like, you're, you're a brown boy, but you're not a brown boy like the Bangladeshis either. You're, you're a brown exile, basically. They didn't use the word exile, but they, they would call me brown boy. It's interesting now, right? We, we, we use the word brown with pride. It was, a, it was a derogatory term used against me for a long time. But I said to say that the assimilationist engine creates a kind of moving target no matter which direction you go. If you try to pursue the white ideal, it's a, it's a target you're always chasing. You have imposter syndrome. In some ways, and I've seen this multiple times in my family, even for those in my family who are visibly Afro-Latino, in some ways... It works when you pursue that pole too. When you head toward blackness, there are, there are some essentialist boundaries sometimes that say you might be black to what degree, but you ain't black like this, right? And so there are some complicated realities about these polycentric identities. I'm using that phrase. I'm borrowing that from our brother Juan Francisco Martinez, these polycentric identities that suggest that Hispanics are always in a fluid space when it comes to how they might be identified. It's always a moving target. Whether you pursue Afro-Latinidad and and identify that way, or you're pursuing whiteness, which there's some severe problems with that. But there's some gatekeeping that happens in either of those. There's the gatekeeping of essentialist Afro-Latinidad, and there's some gatekeeping about whiteness. We've talked about those Mexican elites who drew the line only at themselves with their privilege, right? And so Juan Martina says that that this assimilationist engine, you know, uh, it creates some complex acculturation issues that, that create real conflicts entre nuestra, nuestra gente. Well, here's the thing. Let's 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 put it all out there. Let's really muddy up the waters. What do you do with a Korean who grew up in Mexico and says he's Mexican? Right. Right. 
that he's not a chinito, okay? And Latinos would always say, oh, he's a chinito, but he's not a chinito, okay? In any way, what do you do with someone who migrated, anyone who migrated to Latin America for whatever reason? What is their identity? Yeah. Can they be who they say they are? I have a Jewish friend who's Guatemalan. And he went to the Pentecostal church in the neighborhood, but he also went to the synagogue. We got work to do. We've got work to do. The, the truth of the matter is that assimilation has for a long time erased the complexity. And as we finally move past assimilation, thank, thankfully that has been put on full display because of some of the things that have happened in, in the political world here in the U.S., but as we start to move away from those assimilationist tendencies, we, we have a world we have to make sense of. We have to make sense of the different polycentric identities, that is, those moving targets like Afro-Latinidad, Mestizaje, Mulates, and all the rest of them. We have to make sense of how do these fit together? What is the fabric of this all? Hey, y'all, that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the season. We've given you a little bit of our personal stories. We've talked about the history of how these things came to be. We welcomed you back into the season. We're excited to talk about the complexity of, the, of all of this, to decolonize aspects of it, to make sense of how uh, multiculturalism might have hurt the church in some ways, and in some ways how we might be able to grow from there. And so expect to have deeper conversations about targeted aspects of this, specific aspects of it, including Afro-Latinidad is one of them. But we're going to be working against that assimilationist um, engine, and we're going to be working toward a healthy view of the multiracial, multicultural, fill-in-the-multi-whatever-you-want uh, aspect of the Mestizo Church. Elizabeth, did I miss anything in those closing marks? remarks? Yes, we have some very exciting guests who are not only uh, scholars in those areas and persons well experienced in creating spaces, but uh, persons who have thought very deeply about this and who represent in their own journeys and lives, the things we've been talking about. So we're not just having people talking about, you know, logical theories and stuff, people who have experienced this and for whom it's very uh, day to day and practical. And that's the exciting part. I'm looking forward to the guests that we're going to have. Yeah. So speaking of that, let me tell you, Marzo 17, that's episode two of this season. We have Daniel Rodriguez, uh, author of A Future for the Latino Church and professor of religion and Hispanic studies at Pepperdine College. Is it Pepperdine or Pepperdine? I never know how to say that. Pepperdine. Pepperdine. Hey, I told you I had a surprise for you. Let me unveil that surprise to you. World Outspoken is partnering with, well, we already have this partner, but we are, we're doing an initiative together with our partners at Passion to Plant Network. Uh, Passion to Plant is a church planting organization dedicated to training black and brown church planters to start justice-oriented churches today. And so it's an awesome network, an awesome ministry led by our friend, Dr. Liz Rios, uh, she is the bomb. If you don't follow her on social media, you need to do that. She's the best. Um, she's going to be joining us and partnering with us to help launch a series of webinars that will go once a month along corresponding with this podcast. So the first webinar will happen actually on March 24th. 
And then we'll give you the dates for the next ones after that. They're most likely going to happen on the third Monday of every month. But I'll give you those details. The 24th of this month, the 24th of March, is the first of these webinars. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing in those webinars. We're going to have pastors, church planters, practitioners. Just like Elizabeth said, we're going to have on the podcast. We're going to have experts who've done the work who've been planting churches that reflect the multiracial reality that aren't assimilationists that are showing the diverse beauty of God's people. And this is what we're going to be doing. We're inviting those of you who are current pastors, who are either interested in or are starting a church plant, those of you who are considering future ministry in the church, those of you that are in school, we know we have a lot of students that listen to the podcast. We're inviting you to join us as part of those webinars. There are four of them total. Now, here's the thing. We're a nonprofit, but there are expenses that come with this. And so the webinars are each $30 a webinar, or you can purchase all four of them for $100. You can do that on uh, the World Outspoken website by visiting worldoutspoken.com slash webinars for more details. I'll say more about that in a moment. But let me say something to nuestra gente. I know how Latinos are. $30 is like, oh, maybe not, right? When I decided I was going to go study at Moody, I was blessed by a church that said, we do believe in your call to ministry. We do believe that the Lord is calling you to get further training. We're going to help to get you there. And I had some faithful brothers and sisters who, who gave to support me in that. If you're a listener and you know someone who you think is called to ministry, someone who's called to church planting in particular, remember, these are going to be experts that are a part of the Passion to Plant Network. This is, this is pretty serious, y'all. For those that are called to ministry, be ascending church. Be ascending Christian. Say, I will pay the $30 to get this person the training that they need so that they can further explore what it means to be a black or brown church planter who pursues justice, who is doing the mission of what God is doing, who's preaching the gospel in powerful ways. So be ascending church. Again, you can find more details about these webinars at worldoutspoken.com slash webinars. You can buy a single access to just one of them for $30. You can buy access to the first one for $30, or you can buy all four of them for $100. That sounds great. Hope you see yourselves when you're part of any kind of a learning experience or webinar or otherwise as someone who is not only receiving, but also uh, contributing. That's right. And this is a wonderful experience for you to always also bring your own experience, uh, bring your questions, because they help to open up the ministry pieces that are taking place. And this is about being justice focused. We are learning new things about what that means for a Latino church. And uh, I hope that you will come, not only learn, but also contribute. Now, every season we give you the opportunity to send us questions. You can do that again. Leave us a message at 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a voicemail, 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss your questions that you have about the things we discuss on the last season of the episode. You can also submit a question following the link in the show notes. Again, always follow us on social media at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, we look forward to and are excited about a second season with you all. Mi gente, bendiciones. Elizabeth, you want to say goodbye? Hey, keep thinking, keep contributing, keep being who you are. Feel proud of who you are. Familia, nos vemos.